Hi, this is Adam White, host of AEI's Unprecedential. You're about to hear my conversation with Ed Whalen, Judge Jeffrey Sutton, about their new book, The Essential Scalia. We recorded this about two weeks before the sad news of the death of Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. Justice Ginsburg and Justice Scalia were, of course, famously good friends. For more on this, I'd encourage you to read an essay that my colleague Christopher Scalia, AEI's Director of Academic Affairs, wrote for foxnews.com. It's titled, My Father's Relationship with Justice Ginsburg, Best of Friends. And now, the episode. Welcome back to Unprecedental, the American Enterprise Institute's podcast on American constitutionalism. I'm Adam White. Justice Antonin Scalia was appointed to the Supreme Court in 1986. He passed away in 2016. In his nearly 30 years on the court, he wrote nearly 900 judicial opinions. Those opinions and the three books that he authored while on the court and his other writings as a judge on the D.C. Circuit, a law professor, and even a resident fellow here at AEI will challenge and entertain readers for generations to come. In 2017, Christopher Scalia and Ed Whalen produced an edited volume of Scalia's speeches titled, fittingly, Scalia Speaks. Two years later, they returned with a collection of Justice Scalia's writings on faith. Now we see the release of a third volume, a collection of judicial opinions and other writings titled The Essential Scalia on the Constitution, the Courts, and the Rule of Law. It was edited by two former Scalia clerks who happen to be our guests in today's episode. Judge Jeffrey Sutton of the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit, and Ed Whalen, President of the Ethics and Public Policy Center. Judge Sutton, Ed, thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Adam. Thank you. Ed, let's start with you. You've already worked to produce two volumes of Scalia's writings. So here comes the third. How and when did it come about? Well, I think when the publishers saw the great success of Scalia Speaks, they knew there was plenty of room for sequels. The first sequel we did, as you mentioned, was On Faith. But we had in mind all along that there'd be a volume devoted to law, which, of course, is really the jewel and the crown of Justice Scalia's work. Frankly, I found this to be a daunting prospect all along and was happy to push it down the road until I was confident that we could make a go of it. Justice Scalia has written so much, spoken so much on law over the years. And, of course, there are already books about his judging, books of his opinions. So it was a real challenge to figure out how we could make sure we did something distinctive, something that would be a fitting monument to his great legacy. Now, we'll get to the contents of the books in just a moment. But first, let's start with the two of you. You have a, a long background together as friends, as former Scalia clerks. You clerked together for Justice Scalia. Am I remembering that correctly? Yes. We clerked the same year, OT 1991. So that's the fall of 1991, mm-hmm. spring of 1992. Fairly significant term at the court. That's the term of Lee versus Weissman, Casey, Lucas, New York versus United States. There are quite a few really significant decisions from that term. And I guess I could say we were in the trenches together, Ed. But, you know, probably the thing that we share the most is Justice Scalia was a remarkable teacher as a boss. And mainly through the example, he just brought so much passion to every case. It was very hard to drink it that well and not want to continue drinking it that well. And I suspect that has a lot to do with our friendship, but I wouldn't say it's the only reason for our friendship. Now, Judge, surely your experience clerking with Justice Scalia has informed your career as a judge and your work as a judge. And I suppose in the other direction, your years and years of service on the bench informed your work in in helping to put this book together. There's no doubt about it. As a law student, it was hard to ignore and not enjoy Justice Scalia's clever lines and phrases. As a young lawyer, I really enjoyed practicing in front of him and arguments at the U.S. Supreme Court. I mean, nothing kept you up more at night than thinking about what he was going to ask you and how you were going to answer it. But I didn't really come to appreciate the justice until I became a judge. It's a hard job. You're allocating disappointment to half of the people that come before you. And the only way you can sleep well at night is to feel comfortable you've got a philosophy of judging that's neutral, principled, and not just about looking in the mirror and seeing what you happen to like. And I will say from 2003 on, whether it was reading decisions he'd already written or following decisions as he wrote them, I just really came to focus on it a lot more and really come to appreciate what he was trying to do. You know, the book obviously is not just for judges, but it is a book that judges will appreciate. And if you're an advocate, you better learn his language because there's 
very few courts in the country without some judges or justices that do not speak his language pretty well, maybe not as well as he spoke it, but speak it pretty well. Now, Ed, in the time since you were a clerk for Justice Scalia, you've not been a federal judge, but you've been very active in the court of public opinion, so to speak. And that's also a court that Justice Scalia knew well. He spoke often, and as he said often, his judicial opinions were written for an audience well beyond just the litigants of the court or or the Supreme Court bar. How did working for Justice Scalia help to inform your own career, especially these last couple of decades as a public intellectual? studying and writing on the courts, and advocating regarding the courts? Well, as Jeff indicated, I think it's impossible to work for Justice Scalia for a year without absorbing his understanding of the law, without being shaped by it. It was my privilege for much of the last 15 or 20 years to be a leading defender of Justice Scalia in the public square. And one knows that he was sure subject to a lot of attacks, some better based than others, but most presenting plenty of opportunities for a vigorous defense. So look, I think his interpretive methodologies of originalism and textualism comport very much with the intuitive understanding of what the rule of law is. And it was a real pleasure to be promoting those methodologies in his defense. Among the many other people whose work and whose view of the law has been shaped by Justice Scalia is one of his last colleagues on the court, Justice Elena Kagan. She wrote recently regarding Justice Scalia's opinions, they have changed the way all of us, even those who part ways with him at one point or another, think and talk about the law. In reading a statute, does anyone now decline to focus first on its text and context when addressing constitutional meaning? Does anyone now ignore founding principles? Now, as it happens, Justice Kagan didn't just write that anywhere. She wrote that in the foreword to this new book. Ed, could you maybe tell us about Justice Kagan's foreword here? Well, sure. It's a beautiful forward, a very generous act of friendship by Justice Kagan towards Justice Scalia and Mrs. Scalia. I think you see in her forward a real appreciation for what Justice Scalia accomplished. And she captures in that forward one of my goals in this book. You know, for so many years, so many of us, when we would see the Supreme Court issue opinions, we would race to see whether Justice Scalia had written an opinion, whether majority opinion or concurrence or dissent. Yeah, many of us believe that we couldn't really be confident that we understood a case until we had read what he had written about it. And there'd usually be some special bonus, some delightful phrasing, some vivid image, some new way of looking at the law that you discover in his opinions. And I'm hoping that this book is something that people can pull off the shelf when they think, gosh, I have a question about the Fourth Amendment or whether separation of powers, and they'll have experience that same sensation of insight and joy that so many of us have had over the years. This now is the third book, not only the third book you produced of Justice Scalia's writings and speeches, but also the third book that begins with a foreword or an introduction by one of his colleagues on the court. The first book had a foreword by Justice Ruth Bader Ginsburg. The second, On Faith, had a foreword by Justice Clarence Thomas. And now the third, Justice Kagan. People are accustomed to grouping Justice Thomas and Scalia together you know, ideologically or so on. And of course, Justice Scalia's friendship with Ruth Bader Ginsburg was now legendary. But it's interesting to see the impact that he had on Justice Kagan. They knew each other before she was on the court, of course, not as well as he had known Ruth Bader Ginsburg, his colleague from the D.C. Circuit. But he clearly developed a friendly, warm, and impactful relationship with Justice Kagan. And she really has taken many opportunities to reflect upon his impact on her Judge Sutton, you're accustomed to serving on a court with colleagues with whom you'll agree or disagree from case to case. Sometimes I've read your dissents. I know you're a spirited writer as as well. How is it that Justice Scalia was so successful at building these relationships with these justices and others sort of in his orbit who, for all their disagreements, speak so warmly of him and, and, and write so warmly of him? Well, I used to wonder early in my career, perhaps at a cynical phase in my life, how genuine these friendships really were. It's a situation where they each had something to gain, or was this true friendship and true respect? And I have no doubt these were genuine, authentic relationships. I can still remember talking to Justice Kagan within a couple days of his passing and and realizing that this wasn't just hard for me, it was hard for her. You know, I had an instance, gosh, it might have been the last time I was in Justice Scalia's chambers, maybe not the last, but one of the last times I happened to be there and Justice Ginsburg's birthday, 
lo and behold, there were two dozen roses on the table. And when it was time for me to go, the justice said, well, it's Ruth's birthday. I've got to bring these roses down to her. And I go, justice, two dozen roses. I don't think I've given that many roses to my wife in 30 years of marriage. He, of course, mocked me as he didn't mind doing and said, well, you ought to try it sometimes, Jeff. And couldn't give him the last word. And so I said, well, what good have these roses done you? Find me one 5-4 decision in which you got her vote, and it was a case of real consequence. And he said, you know, with a smile on his face, a twinkle in his eye, some things are more important than votes. And read on faith to know that votes weren't all that mattered to Justice Scalia. There were quite a few other things that mattered greatly. The other thing I would say about his friendship with Justice Kagan and Justice Ginsburg is not just that they had some affection for each other and enjoyed each other's sense of humor. They had real respect for each other's legal abilities. I can still remember Justice Scalia talking about Justice Ginsburg's civil procedure decisions. And he, you know, he'd say, boy, Jeff, you know, she, she gets into one of those. It's like a dog on your leg. She just will not let go on these civil procedure cases. And he really respected her view on those cases. And find times where he disagreed with her on that. And there had to be a real serious problem. And I think the same thing with Justice Kagan, when she says in her lovely forward that, you know, the first, you know, as soon as she saw that he'd sent a letter or a new opinion, she stopped everything. She meant it in the same way Ed and I mean it when we said we did the same thing when those opinions came out. She really enjoyed seeing what he had to say. And I know for a fact he admired her legal thinking and writing, even if they didn't share the same philosophy. So it's nice. It's sad that it's so unusual. I think part of what he really appreciated with both Justice Ginsburg and Justice Kagan is that they would argue with him. For him, argument was not about scoring debating points. Argument undertaken in good faith was about getting towards the truth, getting towards the right answer. The number of colleagues over the years who, when they had the votes, they would simply ignore what was said in dissent. Not Justice Ginsburg, not Justice Kagan. They would engage, and I think he respected that they would. Yeah, in one of Justice Scalia's famous articles early in his career, he said, a cynic has said, with five votes, anything on the court is possible. And he was too polite to point out that that was not just any cynic, that was Justice Brennan's line. But even he and, and Justice Brennan, much less has been written of their relationship, but I've heard stories of sort of warm jokes between the, the two of them. It's really remarkable the way Justice Scalia was able to endear himself to his, his colleagues and vice versa. Given his public persona as being often championed for some of the more colorful phrases of his, or pointed phrases of his dissenting opinions. I'm, I'm, I'm told that uh, Justice Brennan said once about a concurrence or dissent that Justice Scalia had written with a smile and his, a twinkle in his eye. He said, boy, he can really get on a high horse. And when he does, boy, does he like to ride. <laughs> <laughs> well, let's dive into the material of the book. As Judge Sutton, as you note in your introduction to the book, Justice Scalia wrote 870 opinions. 281 majorities, 315 concurrences, and 274 dissents. Almost 900 opinions for the two of you to at least have in, you know, as possible candidates for inclusion in this book, along with all the other non-judicial writings that you included here. As the two of you sat down to plan this volume, after having already gone through his speeches and his writings on faith, what were your basic organizing principles? What were the themes that helped you structure this book? Edmund, we'll start with you. Well, I think that one way in which I wanted to make this book distinctive was to illustrate that his thinking on law really covered the gamut of, of issues from constitutional to statutory and administrative, from methodological at the high level to you know the nitty-gritty on some important constitutional issues. So we were looking for opinions and speeches and articles on important issues where he had something special to say. And fortunately, there are an awful lot of those. Judge, what was the hardest part of selecting these? And, and also, not just selecting, but editing the individual contributions? Because as the two of you explained in your editor's note, you did have to do some work of editing the documents for proper inclusion here. Well, the one reason... The Essential Scalia won't be the last book as there's so much we had to leave on the cutting room floor. I really enjoyed reading a bunch of his, some of them were AEI pieces, but a bunch of his work from the 70s and early 80s, which is just so well done and so thoughtful. And then you realized, wow, this is going to take a lot of setup to allow the reader to understand what he was talking about. And a lot of passes by. So 
you couldn't include it, even though it was so thoughtful. And if you knew the debate at the time, just so acute in its insights, I think we did want to make sure the reader would understand he cared about structure. We wanted to make sure the reader had a good sample of his constitutional interpretation decisions and textual statutory interpretation decisions and his thoughts about judging in general. But you're right to worry that it wasn't easy to edit them down. It wasn't as if he wasn't a very good editor himself. So think about how daunting that was, editing what he'd already edited many times over. Happily, we knew the book could only be so big, and we knew there was an awful lot of topics we wanted to cover. So by necessity, that did require us to take a lot of terrific stuff out. I mean, I hope the reader, when they see a sample from one of these opinions, realizes they really ought to go check the whole thing out, because I I can think of so many lines and paragraphs that are are so terrific and so persuasive. And the other thing I might say, you know, I don't know, Ed, if this factored into your thinking about our selection, but when you got outside of the general topics and you were getting into, say, specific constitutional guarantees, let's say rights, we did want to make sure there was a pretty good sample across, so, you know, some criminal procedure, which, of course, became a specialty of his and a really wonderful way for him to illustrate some of the virtues of originalism. And, you know, not just do legislative history, statutory interpretation cases, or just administrative law cases where, you know, he had so much expertise and was so well known. You know, I guess that would be the gamut of considerations. Ed, this has to be pretty daunting to be going about the work of putting this book together, as Judge Sutton pointed out. Editing the work of Justice Scalia, I, I don't know if I could take that kind of pressure of sitting in judgment of of Scalia's own writings. Oh, it's easy for Ed. I've, I've seen him edit me and about <laughs> anybody else. <laughs> well, the editing, of course, wasn't to improve in any way what Justice Scalia did. It was rather to condense things and make them accessible, not just for lawyers and law students, but also for the general readers. And so in many cases, what we're doing is eliminating a lot of the setup in cases or the back and forth with other justices on secondary issues. So when it comes to the heart of the opinions, there's really no editing other than cutting out citations and just making it simpler for the reader to get through. But this is all Justice Scalia. Judge, you mentioned Scalia's focus on criminal protections. I'm just so glad that that got such a full treatment in the book here, because among conservatives, libertarians, it might not be often the first thing that they think of with Scalia. I mean, oftentimes we'll think of it, but obviously he was focused on so many different areas of law. This doesn't always jump to the front of our minds, but it clearly was important to Justice Scalia, his, his efforts on the, in sort of reforming and improving the public's understanding of the Sixth Amendment, of the criminal process in general, and rooting it in textualism, not just sort of vague considerations of the interests of criminal suspects or criminal defendants, but really rooting it in the text of the Constitution. The opinions you've included here really do allow that part of his work to shine and really remind us of the full breadth and depth of Scalia's sort of focus on the power of the courts and the power of government. You know, at one level, I would call it a superficial level, it would be easy to be surprised that this Reagan appointee ended up being one of the great civil libertarians in the court and one of the greatest protectors of criminal defendants' rights. The reason that's a superficial approach to it is that's just not how he saw things. It's true you would not have thought of him as someone as a matter of policy, eager to protect individuals accused of crimes or for that matter convicted of them. And in some areas of criminal law, take the death penalty, he was a pretty tough vote. But boy, if you could show him that the original meaning of this guarantee was being diluted or not taken seriously, he was the best friend you ever had. And I used to think that this was something that was a switch that turned on about halfway through his career. That's really not true. If you look at Maryland versus Craig, one of the first confrontation clause cases where the equities are so powerfully against his position, the question is whether a child who's been a victim of a sexual predator, whether the defendant has a right to look at the child while the child's testifying, whether you can put a screen between them. It's so easy to understand why states would want that screen there. It's easy to understand why the majority would want to allow that screen to stay in place despite the Sixth Amendment. But boy, he came out of the gates on that one. You know, he's just, I'm sorry, I I understand the point, but the word is confront. And, you know, that laid the groundwork for a decision that might suggest Craig's no longer good law. But more importantly, it's the Crawford decision where he leads the court to overrule the Roberts decision, Roberts 
versus United States, I think, decision, not Chief Justice Roberts, to overrule a decision that had used a balancing test to decide when the confrontation clause applied. And by the time he was done with Crawford, it was a 7-2 decision. That's a lot of vote changing because Roberts had been followed by many members of the court. You know, the most interesting question is not what Ed and I think his best opinion was. It's what he thought his best opinion was. And I think he probably would give different answers to different, slightly different ways to phrase the question. But this was one he's writing for the majority. He's undoing some of the things he didn't care for, non-originalist decisions leading to balancing tests. And he's doing it in an area where he wouldn't necessarily side with the, the outcome. So Crawford was one of his favorite decisions. There's just no doubt about it, whether it's the favorite, who knows. But you know, I can remember as a judge having my first confrontation case and for the first time carefully reading that decision because I now had to figure out what to do with my case and just so admiring. It's a really beautiful opinion. And if you want you know, an advertisement for originalism, that probably is about as good as it gets. The other area of law that I'm so glad was included in here, which oftentimes isn't at the forefront in discussions of Scalia, it's in your section on judicial power, and it's the opinions on standing, the requirement under the Constitution's restriction of the judicial power to cases and controversies that a plaintiff actually have standing, an actual injury that's concrete and particularized. I could run through the factors if I were still in law school that's caused by the defendant's actions and remediable by the court. That was always part of my understanding of Scalia because I had the great good fortune of taking his Federal Society class back when I was in law school the class he would teach every other summer with John Baker of, of LSU. And the class, when I took it, was titled Standing in the Separation of Powers. And I hadn't, by the end of my second year at law school, dimly aware of the separation of powers. I hadn't studied federal courts, so I didn't really focus on standing at all. And what was so amazing watching those three days was the way that Scalia walked through that particular issue and then tied it into so many of the other aspects of separation of powers that are much more famous in his jurisprudence. It really showed his care for the limited power of courts, the crucial but limited power of courts. And this too is something that he wrote famously on. You have the Lujan decision, but he was writing about this from the 1970s onward, sort of as he saw firsthand the way that the DC circuit, especially, had sort of stretched, overstretched its bounds. I don't know if you have any thoughts on that. I'd be very curious for you and also for the judge on if you could just pick a couple of opinions here that you think best exemplify his view of American constitutionalism? I know it's a hard question to ask, hard to pick one or two opinions, but if you could pick one or two opinions, I'd love to hear it. Well, one strong candidate certainly has to be his solo dissent in Morrison versus Olson on the independent counsel statute. Have in mind that this was at the end of just his second term on the court. He was writing in the face of a majority opinion by Chief Justice Rehnquist, someone who certainly been regarded as a champion of separation of powers. And he alone explained why this conferral of power on this three-judge panel to appoint an independent counsel and the limitations on the removal authority transgressed what he saw as the essential separation of powers lines. It's a beautifully written opinion, so powerful. And it's an opinion that I think it's fair to say over the course of decades has won lots of advocates. I think, for example, of Linda Greenhouse, who wrote very dismissively of his dissent when it first came out, and then a few decades later said that it was prescient and basically everyone understood its merits. So I'm hopeful that'll be true of more of his opinions over time, but Morrison versus Olson certainly stands out for me as the first clear sign that he would be a great justice. I think he may have even referred to that himself as his favorite opinion. I'm thinking of that interview he did for New York Magazine, it must have been about 10 years ago. I think he may have referred to that as his favorite opinion. Judge Sutton, do you have one or two that particularly stand out in addition to Morrison v. Olson as maybe the best single windows in? I mean, obviously, any single opinion is going to be incomplete, but are there any particularly great windows into his view of constitutionalism? I really admire Crawford. It's not just that it's an originalist decision that gets seven votes. It's a course-correcting decision, which gets the court thinking about you know, not what the best way to balance competing interests in a case happens to be, but what the original meaning of this particular guarantee was. And that's pretty admirable. You know, one thing about Morrison, just to add to what Ed said, is it shows early on what an independent thinker he was going to be. And that comes from two things. He had deep convictions already about things like separation of powers. 
but he also was someone that was going to be persuadable if you could show that this conventional wisdom was wrong. And if there's one thing he did not mind doing, it was challenging conventional wisdom. I hesitate to pick cases from our term because it looks a little self-indulgent, but you know, he did write some great dissents in our term, Lee versus Weissman and Casey, and they certainly give you a flavor of, well, I mean, Casey, I mean, talk about foreshadowing. I mean, what does he warn us about with Casey? I mean, if you can, do your best to put the underlying issue to the side. But what he warns us about is if five justices of McCourt are going to take on issues that all 330 million people care deeply about, that's going to create some serious problems for selecting judges. And, you know, our last presidential election arguably turned on there being his very seat open. And a lot of people choosing a vote for president of the United States is a proxy to fill one seat on a nine-member court. Casey's not the only place he talked about that problem, but I think he's been vindicated on that broader point. Those are two particularly amazing dissents, I think, because they go beyond just the specific technicalities of the laws at issue. And he really does give a window into his view of America as a country, its traditions, its government, its culture. The Casey opinion, as you mentioned, he says, and this is, if I remember correctly, right on the heels of the Justice Thomas confirmation, right? He says in his dissent, my colleagues are worried that the confirmation process for this court is getting too contentious. He points the blame for that on the justices themselves and says that so long as our view of the Constitution is just whatever our value judgments are, the people can, and I think he says, and should make their views known in the confirmation hearing. Obviously, the Justice Thomas hearings were about something very different, but in terms of just the general contentious nature of the hearings, Overall, he points the mirror back at the court itself. And in Lee versus Weissman, he takes such umbrage at an attempt by the court to erase sort of public showings of religious faith in a community from that community in just really stirring ways. Sometimes opinions like that or his dissent in the VMI case, sometimes those are my favorites because he really does talk about, again, not just the legal technicalities. And of course, he cared more than anybody or as much as anybody about legal technicalities. But those were the moments where he really brought it down to first principles about what the country's about, what our constitution's about, and what our court is about. Look at the path. He was confirmed 98 to zero. I was confirmed 52 to 41 to a middle management court where anytime I do anything remotely consequential, I can be reversed within a year. And of course, that pattern is spread to appointees of Republican, Democratic presidents, of course, more Supreme Court nominees, and how it gets better before it gets worse. I have no idea. I mean, this, it shows you that he was an originalist, not for some strategic reason. It shows you he was an originalist because he cared about the court and this crown jewel of American government. He did not want to see it tarnished. And, you know, you can say he was wrong, but I don't understand what competing view of constitutional interpretation there is that doesn't continue to lead us down this perilous path we're on. Adam, I would add that I think Scalia Speaks, the first volume in this trilogy, can very much be understood as Justice Scalia's lessons about how we perpetuate this great American experiment in self-government, what lessons need to be drawn from the past, and how we can actually make this continue to work. And I think if you can read that together with his understanding of the specific issues under the Constitution and the judicial role, it really fleshes out his fuller understanding of things. I'd say, and I was going to mention this at the end, but I'll just say it now. I think actually these two books, they absolutely need to be read together because they really shine a light on one another. The understanding of Scalia's view of the law is so much more complete when you read Scalia Speaks. And obviously then Scalia Speaks gives you the sort of the foundations for his judicial worldview. I remember reading Scalia Speaks and just being struck, for example, struck by his references to Tocqueville. He cites Tocqueville over and over again in the speeches in your book. I had checked before that book ever came out. I was curious if he'd ever cited Tocqueville. And I don't, if he cited Tocqueville in judicial opinions, I don't think I ever saw it. A Frenchman for an originalist perspective? Well, that's that's true. (laughs) But yeah, he never was one for foreign opinions. But it really is remarkable how the Scalia Speaks book gave us that whole foundation And also On Faith as well. I mean, it's no coincidence that both On Faith and the new book begin with epigraphs from Robert Bowles' Man for All Seasons, the story of Thomas More. The one thing I would add to our conversations about some of his favorite decisions, I think the one thing he would say, 
and probably a reason he might not pick one, particularly if it came, when it came to civil liberties, is he was equally concerned about a court that was inventing new rights, adding rights to the Constitution that weren't there, as he was about subtracting, diluting rights that were there. And, you know, that's, you have to get the whole picture. I mean, that, that is so central to what he was doing and so central to his concerns about not adopting an originalist approach to the Constitution and treating it as a legal document with fixed meaning. While we're on the subject of his opinions, why don't we talk a little bit about federalism? It's a subject you know well. I commend to our listeners your own book, 51 Imperfect Solutions, States and the Making of American Constitutional Law. Federalism was a structural principle that Scalia cared about as much as all the others. What do the opinions in this book tell us about Scalia and federalism? Well, you know, you don't find a lot of areas of the law where Justice Brennan and Justice Scalia agreed. And in fact, when you do, you might think that's approaching something slightly akin to a biblical truth. One area where they both did agree is on the value of states when it came to their being the first responders to new debates about individual rights. You know, Justice Brennan famously wrote a 1977 Harvard Law Review article about state courts and state constitutions. And as it turns out, Justice Scalia's very last opinion for the court, Kansas versus Carr, echoes that exact point. So he did appreciate these 51 sovereigns, these 51 potential approaches to constitutional interpretation. When it comes to the book and the writings for which he's known the best, his federalism work prints is obviously really important. And, you know, I argued a lot of cases in front of him, many of them on federalism issues. And one nice thing for him is he did care about the history. He did care about what the framers were trying to do, what the structure was, that we had this dual sovereign system of government. You know, he had a background that was surely informed about administrative law, surely informed about separation of powers at the national government, probably somewhat informed about individual rights, although I don't think that was the focus of his scholarship. He didn't really have a background in federalism. You know, he lived in Chicago. That's not something he taught. He'd been in District of Columbia. He'd worked in the administration in different positions. So I actually think coming to the court, he didn't have a deep background of reservoir of thought about federalism. But, you know, he did take seriously the original meaning and the original structure, which has horizontal and vertical protections. And, you know, Prince is a terrific example of that case. And it's the anti-commandeering doctrine. You know, some people were critical of it at the outset. At this point, it's now embraced by both sides of the aisle, both sides of the academy. You know, I think it's probably here to stay. He did make one mistake. I'm not sure I think Rach was his finest hour. That's the California medical marijuana case. He wasn't a dispositive vote. He was a sixth vote. But it's a pretty enthusiastic opinion of federal power and the necessary and proper clause. And I sometimes wonder if how that fit in with everything else he did. But of course, that probably is subject to my own biases on the topic more than anything else. Well, while the Raish opinion doesn't appear in the new book, your section on federalism does begin with the speech he gave at one of the early Federalist Society conventions, maybe the first one. It was published under the title, The Two Faces of Federalism. One of my favorite things he's ever written, and I think it's a must read. He has this sort of metaphor. He said, federalism doesn't just point in one direction. It's a stick you use to whip both dogs. I say that advisedly with my own dog sleeping in the corner. I don't want him to worry. But he, I think, actually, in part coming from his background in telecommunications law and administrative law, understood, and those are the examples he uses in the speech, he understands the role of the federal government in certain spheres regulating the national market. And I'd say that people who read the Raish opinion but hadn't read the two faces of federalism issue might have been totally stunned, right, in the aftermath of Morrison and Lopez and everything else that he joined in the 1990s. And whether he got it right or wrong in Raish, and for whatever it's worth, I'm inclined in his direction in that case. I'd say that the two faces of federalism issue really does highlight how Scalia saw this as an area of not sort of all in one direction or the other, but federalism sort of striking an important balance. Or Ed, am I wrong about that? No, I think you're very right. And I think he spells that out very forcefully, among other things, exhorting some of his fellow conservatives to think about, hey, now that you have the power of the presidency, use it affirmatively to get good things done. Stop thinking so defensively about blocking the federal government. Not long before he gave that talk, he published an essay in Regulation Magazine, which he was editing at the time. It was then published here at AEI. 
And he wrote this essay, I think it was in the, the 1981 issue, which was for the Reagan inauguration. And it was called Regulatory Reform, The Game Has Changed. And Judge Sutton mentioned, you know, Scalia's writings from the 70s going into the 80s. I have the sort of the pleasure of teaching a lot of those essays and writings for my seminar on Scalia at the Scalia Law School. Yeah, it is. And being an administrative law guy, I'm biased in favor of his administrative law writings. But that essay too, Regulatory Reform, The Game Has Changed, he really urges conservatives to separate sort of their tactical judgments from their principled judgments, right? And stay focused on principle, of course, but understand that tactics can cut one way or another. He says at one point, I guess this is in the Two Faces of Federalism article, he says, sometimes tactics, they accidentally calcify into an ideology. And he warned against that. And he warned that we need to keep these things separate. His writings on administration in that essay and elsewhere in that era really did lay the groundwork for the very deferential administrative law that he pioneered. He wasn't on the court for the Chevron decision, but he was its staunchest advocate. For many, many years, you have his Duke Law Journal article. Remember correctly, you have that in here. Yes, in 1989, his Duke Law Journal article. And then you, you publish a version of the talk he was giving 20 years later, where he really starts to offer his candid views on what went right and what went wrong with the way that his view of Chevron was applied over the years. Now, these days, I'd say conservatives and libertarians have really parted ways with the Scalia view of deference and some other administrative law doctrines from the 80s into the 90s. As we see here, Scalia had some doubts of his own by the end. But maybe we talk about that for a moment, about Scalia on administrative law and his views of administration and judicial review and maybe how today's conservatives and libertarians seem inclined in a different direction. Yeah, well, I'll start out with that. Yeah, it was hard not to notice as a young judge that Justice Stevens had written Chevron and Justice Scalia had become its foremost proponent of it. You had to think, boy, that's a lot of overlap of the Venn diagrams. There must be some truths there. And I, I must say, my initial reaction was to accept that, perhaps without as much thought as I should have. You know, another way to look at this is here's a doctrine that he championed for a long time. We'll circle back to his second thoughts, but let's focus on a doctrine that he championed for a long time. And let me make this observation. I can't remember the last time a case in front of me turned on Chevron deference. I'll bet it's at least five years. Maybe it's 10, but I'll bet it's at least five. And so you might say to yourself, hmm, that's a little damning. Here's a doctrine he championed, and yet it's a doctrine that's not being used very often. Is that because the federal courts are embarrassed by it? Is that because people that take interpretation seriously are nervous about invoking it? And I actually think it shows something quite different. And it shows that you can't lose sight of one feature of Chevron. At the end of the day, it was a statutory interpretation case. And Scalia, when he embraced Chevron, that came at a time when we were not all textualists, in Justice Kagan's words. We very much were living in a world, particularly in the D.C. Circuit, where, put in a kind way, fairly loosey-goosey statutory interpretation. In that world, it seemed to make some sense to let elected presidents choosing their own agency heads have this political authority to decide what these statutes meant at the margins when the judges interpreting them, who are not politically accountable, they have life tenure, weren't really following an accepted set of rules we could all agree upon. Well, of course, that world has changed. In 2020, we live in a world where, yes, you're going to have King versus Burwell, you're going to have some close cases. But for the most part, we're talking about the same thing. No one doesn't want to hear about the text. No one doesn't want to use the canons. Very few people lightly use legislative history anymore. So I'm going to circle back to Chevron, but let's not lose sight of a really critical reality. It's a statutory interpretation case. And this is one area where he really did have some lasting influence on the lower federal courts and the U.S. Supreme Court itself in terms of shared assumptions about how to get to the meaning of a statute. You know, I think his 20 years later speech illustrates to me one of the places he was coming from when it came to Chevron, and it, it is slightly pragmatic, I must admit. And, you know, the slightly pragmatic point was, on the one hand, we have serious problems with not following the meaning of the APA, serious separation of powers problems with Chevron, but at the same time, you know, how much do we want the courts handling all of this stuff? And this goes back to his rule of law as a law of rules, and a clear approach, even one that 
shortchange some separation of powers concerns, shortchange perhaps the APA, to him might have seemed worth it if everyone could agree on a neutral approach to how to apply Chevron. And after Meade, he threw up his hands. There's just, there's just little doubt that he was deeply frustrated with that tack. And God only knows what would have happened had he stayed on the court a little longer. But I do think the 20 years later speech illustrates that he was really thinking anew about Chevron in a world in which statutory interpretation had really improved. Well, I'll dissent a little bit here. That is, I think his remarks 20 years later really reflect his dissatisfaction with how the court had misapplied Chevron in the meantime, especially in the, the Meade case that Judge Sutton mentioned. And I'm actually concerned that many of the current conservative critics of Chevron really fail to take into account what Justice Scalia's actual defense of it was. Let's have a default rule against which Congress can legislate. This isn't some sort of constitutional or quasi-constitutional rule. And of course, Justice Scalia at step one of Chevron in determining whether the statute spoke clearly to the matter was much more inclined to, by virtue of his deploying the statutory toolbox, to find that it did. And I guess I'm skeptical of what the process of abandoning Chevron will involve, as Justice Scalia explains in the Chevron speech. Up till then, there had been this inconsistent pattern of when courts defer and when they don't. Chevron tried to provide some clarity there that's arguably been ruined, but I don't know what it is that we move forward to if it's not you know, back to the problem that Chevron was designed to address in the first place. I'd say on these issues, I'd also encourage our audience to look up an article by Justice Scalia's friend, Ron Cass, former dean of Boston University's law school. He wrote a wonderful article a few years ago called Administrative Law in Nino's Wake. He sort of offers some thoughts on Scalia's impact on administrative law, but especially these thoughts on Chevron deference. As Ed points out, so crucial to Scalia's embrace of Chevron was his focus on setting a clear, predictable framework that tried to clarify things as much in advance as possible in terms of how judicial review of an agency action would work with an eye to Congress. Scalia's focus on Congress was so crucial to Chevron. Chevron, these questions of deference, even today, people talk about, well, what did Congress intend? Did Congress intend for the courts to defer on this issue for this statute? Justice Scalia characteristically says, there's no sort of congressional intent other than what's in the statutes. We'll create a legal fiction, a presumed intent across the board for a certain deferential framework. And that's the stable background rule against which Congress, in fact, can then legislate going forward. Applying this whole instinct towards the rule of law as a law of rules, not just for the sake of the judges and the litigants, but for the sake of the lawmakers themselves, Congress, on an ongoing basis, that's so crucial to his understanding of Chevron. I suppose then so crucial to his disappointment with how it was applied over time as Meade and other doctrines complicated things. Adam, can I ask you a question? (laughs) I guess, yeah. If he had abandoned Chevron, what do you think he would have replaced it with? I honestly don't know. As I watch the current justices on the court grapple with what seems to be coming into view as sort of a post-Chevron era, you see just fascinating disagreements among the conservatives themselves. You see Justice Gorsuch and Justice Thomas, who have long sort of skeptical of Chevron as it's come to be, really rooting their frustrations in terms of judicial duty and due process and the judicial duty to say what the law is without deference in, in any case. Chief Justice Roberts and Justice Kavanaugh, they don't frame their concerns in quite the same way. I sometimes refer to them as the men to don't end at school. That probably doesn't do it justice. They're looking for a way to preserve the democratic accountability that Chevron allowed for, allowing elections, presidential elections to have consequences, while at the same time avoiding the really erratic shifts in law from one administration to the next. Scalia himself points that out in the 89 article, right, where he says, at some point, rapid swings from one administration to the next might rise to the level of a due process problem, although he never really specifies where the line would be drawn. I think Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh are particularly worried about that, the radical dislocations in law. But none of these, neither of these camps really respond to Scalia's worry about simplicity in the framework itself. I just, I don't know. I hope someday when Scalia's papers come open, there's a memo to file somewhere, maybe a draft opinion or something that'll tell us all. I hope I'm around to see it. One other area where Justice Scalia's opinion in the book seems a little out of step with the zeitgeist today among his fellow conservatives is the opinion of an employment division versus Smith regarding 
the First Amendment's protection for the free exercise of religion and how it's applied to grant or not grant exemptions from generally applicable laws. There was a claim of exemption from the state of Oregon's laws against drug use. That was a case for which there was conservative disagreement at the time with the writings of Professor McConnell and Ken Starr and others at the time. But Justice Scalia said the First Amendment can't have this sort of categorical carve out for individuals to just claim exemptions from laws. That's the kind of thing that Congress, legislatures need to do if it's applicable. And of course, Congress then did just that through the Religious Freedom Restoration Act. But reading Employment Division versus Smith today in the aftermath of Hobby Lobby and changes in the country's culture, its view of religion and so on, how should we understand Justice Scalia's opinion in Employment Division versus Smith? Ed, what do you think? Well, one criticism of Employment Division versus Smith that I think is well-grounded is that it doesn't present a strong originalist case in defense of its conclusion. Justice Scalia filled that gap some years later in his separate opinion in the city of Bernie versus Flores. Here, as with Chevron, I have to wonder what the new and improved replacement would be. I understand that Employment Division versus Smith can leave to the political processes some very important matters. Justice Scalia obviously understood that as well and said as much in his opinion. But the idea that the courts are going to be able to apply in any coherent way some alternative test, it's far from evident to me that they're going to be able to. And I wonder in the end whether the court will instead just do carve-outs from the scope of Smith, but never actually overrule it. Yeah, I do agree with that, that when you read Smith for the first time, you're realizing this is an opinion that's focused on interpreting other Supreme Court opinions, not an opinion focused on originalism. And, you know, perhaps that's understandable, that no one was challenging those precedents. uh, So it was a matter of figuring out what they mean and what they meant and sorting that out. One way to think about Smith is to not lose sight of his Locke versus Davey dissent, which is in the book. And I think that's a 7-2 case. I think Justice Thomas joins him. I think Chief Justice Rehnquist writes the majority. One could profitably compare the Locke versus Davey dissent with the Espinoza decision from this last term and realize, wait a second, anyone that thinks Justice Scalia is no longer in the driver's seat here isn't paying attention. If you're going to say Smith has to go, I agree with Ed, make sure you're coming up with a better alternative that's originalist in nature. But another way to think about the whole Smith problem is that it just all turns on how you define neutral laws and what really isn't and what really is and when singling out has occurred. And it seems to me those who are concerned about Smith can sometimes do just as effective a job when it comes to paying attention to constitutional free exercise liberties by being skeptical about whether it's neutral. And, you know, of course, the Lukumi case started us down that road. He wrote separately there. But, you know, Locke versus Davey, like I said, it's the Espinosa majority looks a lot like the Locke versus Davey dissent. And that, of course, is by the author of Smith. Let's end on this. We've talked about so many opinions already, and we've talked about Justice Scalia's, I think he said it was his favorite opinion, Morrison versus Olson, the dissent. I'm curious if each of you has a favorite entry in this book. As you're thinking, I'll just say, I'm not sure that it's my favorite. The one I think I'm happiest to see in the book, which wasn't an obvious candidate, was his opinion in the Hamdi versus Rumsfeld case, one of the global war on terror detainee cases. It's an opinion that I was, I think I was fresh out of law school when he decided that. I, I was opposed to it. I, I don't think I, was, I had any sort of intellectual basis to disagree with it, but I was opposed to it. But I think hindsight now, 16 years later, it's just such a special opinion, his window on the meaning of citizenship and the relationship, the fundamental relationships between government and citizens. So having filibustered for a little bit, Ed, do you have a favorite entry in the book? Well, to be candid, I do. I admit it's self-serving. Justice Scalia allowed his law clerks to acknowledge their role in one opinion each year. And the one in which I took part is the dissent in Lee versus Weissman, the establishment clause case that you mentioned before. And I very much enjoyed reading that opinion. It was a great case to work on. I'm sorry it was a dissent, but I think it's a very forceful dissent. It's also very enjoyable to read. Judge, if you also take credit for that opinion, we're going to have a problem on our hands. <laughs> I can't take credit for anything. The only thing I produced for him was straw, and he spun it into gold every single time. <laughs> uh, I'll just be clear, Ed, Ed wasn't taking credit for the opinion. That's, no, no, that's no, my no. words, not his. No, no. Well, that we both saw. I mean, I don't think how much fun that is. He was computer literate. He was pretty good at that. He would take 
back then it was floppy disks. He'd create a floppy disk and bring it home and work at night after the kids went to bed. And it was so much fun. You know, you worked so hard to do something that was just plausibly okay for him. And then, you know, maybe you put together one line you felt really good about. And then to see him, you know, up that by 25, I mean, just, it was just so much fun. I mean, it just was really motivating to me. And if I think of breaks in my career, I'm not sure there was a bigger one than having that opportunity, even if it had just been one, one article, that would have been enough. But that was really something. We talked about the administrative law. I really enjoyed working on the administrative law part of it because I just followed the debate so carefully. And I'd read all of his early writings. And I, I found myself just so humble about what the right answer was, because here's someone who had lived it, practiced it, taught it, and cared deeply about it. So for me, it was really enjoyable to watch that. But you know, one of the fun things about Scalia is you take a case like Rutan versus Republican Party of Illinois, it's this free speech political patronage case. It is such a gem. You know, the ship has sailed, it's a dissent, it's a wonderful originalist decision in terms of illustrating from his perspective how silly it was to ignore these traditions of American government. But I don't know, I don't have favorites. In a book like this, I'd be shocked if anybody does. There are too I think, many. I think a lot of people's favorites reading through it will be PGA Tour versus Martin. His, his, his view of what is golf and what is the court's role in saying what golf is. Well, thanks so much to both of you for, obviously, for putting this book together. It's, I think, a real service to not just the legal community and law students, but to all American citizens who benefited so much from Justice Scalia's insights and, and who now will benefit for generations to come with this book. Ed Whalen, Judge Jeffrey Sutton, so glad that you could join us today. Thanks to our audience, of course, for joining us. Please join us again for the next episode of Unprecedential. Unprecedental.